We're in the middle of a short series, a three-week series, a three-part series called Love Divine, and we're exploring what happens to our human relationships, human loves, if you will, uh, when they collide with God's love or love divine. Uh, Does God's love have anything in common with our human loves? Does God's love transform our human loves, or is God's love just something separate from our human loves? How did the two things interact? And so last week, we, we talked about friendship uh, and, and one of the things we talked about was what makes you know, a good friendship and the glory of friendship. But we also, by the end of the talk, discovered how we can never have truly the friend we wish we could have, and we can never be the friend we hope to be. But it, we didn't leave you there. You'll have to listen to the podcast to hear the rest of it. And here we are today talking about marriage, and it's kind of appropriate because we had a couple of marriage events this weekend, both up at the North Campus and down here uh, with our downtown group, but a lot of young couples yesterday gathering with Tim and Ann Evans, and, and it was just, it was a great sort of day. And I thought, you know, probably with Valentine's coming up this week, for better or for worse, love is on people's minds, and there's a wedding with Evelyn and Nico this week, and there's anniversaries, Mike and Dottie, and there's people getting engaged and all this stuff. So I thought I would show you a picture of when Holly and I first met. And there it is. <laughs> Judging by your laughter, it's already on the screen. So this is 1998, probably March. She was a freshman, I was a junior, we met at college. You can see how it really is a miracle of God that she ended up saying yes to marrying me because there's, yeah, yeah thanks guys. <laughs> a little close up of the face shots there. Yes, yes. And there are other pictures where I had this, these sweaters that would have made Cosby jealous, you know, that were like swirls before Argyle was, was cool again. And uh, I had come from Malaysia, you know, and she had come from uh, Iowa. Of course, when I met her, you can see she had these blonde highlights and all that. So I thought she was probably a, um, a cheerleader from California, forgive the stereotype. And, and she thought, yeah, all I knew was American TV, and she thought that I was probably this sweet, nerdy foreign student guy. And then as we sort of started hanging out, you know, I found out she was really a farm girl from Iowa. And she found out that I was really a sweet, nerdy, foreign student guy. <laughs> but uh, miracles do happen. <laughs> Genesis 1, if you'll turn there in your Bibles, we'll start in the beginning talking about marriage this morning. And don't worry, all of you who are not married, I think there's going to be something in here for you as well. Because here's the deal, guys. We, have a, we live in a culture that gives us images of what they say marriage is like. We live in a world where, whether because of TV or social media, whatever it is, we have things that are trying to put an image in front of us and says, this is what romantic love looks like. This is what marriage looks like. And it's either this unattainable fantasy or it's this very depressing reality, which TV shows seem to be opting for that one more and more. And so we have, this, we have two images set before us, neither of which are very inspiring Because the one is this unrealistic sort of fantasy sort of idea of romantic love. And then you get into a relationship and you think, well, mine is nothing like that. I must have the wrong person. Or you see this very depressing reality of of a husband and wife on sitcoms or whatever. And you think, well, I don't want that. I kind of like my life right now. And what we need is we need to go back to the scriptures and say, God, give us a biblical imagination. Give us a holy picture of what it is you have in mind when you des- decided to have a man and a woman come together. Genesis 1, 27. So God created man or human in his image. 
In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now, if you were to take a quick glance through Genesis 1, Genesis 1 is a poem. And even the structure of the day and night rhythms in Genesis 1 is very much like a poem. And so you'll see on day 1, there's dark and there's light. On day 2, there's heavens and earth. On day 3, there's dry land and seas. On day 4, there's sun and moon. On day 5, there's sea creatures and sky creatures, fish and birds. Day six, there's earth creatures and humans. But he goes one step further on day six, he says, and and male and female. So there's part of this artful design here of God saying, look, this, this, this poem that's being told to us is these opposites that God is making, two things that are meant to sort of go together. And then in Genesis 2, which is a bit more prose and less poetry, you get kind of a zoomed in picture of how God created Eve. And he says here in verse 18, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Again, if you've been paying attention to the poetry, if you've read this before, Genesis 1, there's a series of after every day, what does God say? He says, It is good. It is good. It is good. And God saw it was good. And finally you get to chapter 2 and he says, It's not good. And everybody says, Yeah. No kidding. Amen. Nico, yeah. You're very excited, my man. Six days. Okay. (laughs) And so right off the bat, we can say marriage is God's desire, God's design, God's delight. Other words that start with D. But we see that God is doing this on purpose. Now, here's why this is significant, okay? There's There's been a lot of discussion over the last few decades about what information we can mine out of Genesis 1 and 2, and what is Genesis 1 and 2 meant to tell us and one of the biggest mistakes we can do in abusing the bible is to make it answer questions that the original writers weren't trying to answer that's a quick way to sort of get in trouble is to make the text address questions that it was never intended to answer so for example what do we always look for genesis 1 and 2 to answer we wanted to answer did god create the heavens and the earth right and so there's this big creation versus evolution and science against, you know, whatever. And, and, and so we, we get into these huge di- discussions trying to make Genesis 1 and 2 answer the question that has been a big question for our generation or the generation before us. Did God create the heavens and the earth? But you know what? In the ancient world, nobody was asking that question. How do we know that? Because there was lots of ancient cosmologies or creation mythologies. There were lots of creation stories. In fact, one of the oldest ones is an Akkadian myth called the Enuma Elish. And the Enuma Elish has these stories of gods, plural, who create out of a war, and a war of jealousy, and it's really pretty gross because one god kills the other god and rips their guts out and you know, throws it up there and calls it the sun. Like, wow, that's kind of weird. And you read... Here's the amazing thing. If you set the Genesis creation story in the midst of all those other creation mythologies, you begin to see what the writer of Genesis might have been trying to say. He's not trying to, I suggest he's not trying to answer the question, did God create the heavens and the earth? Everybody in in the ancient world probably thought, of course, some God or gods, plural, did this. But the question is, why? Why and what is he like? And that's what Genesis tells us so clearly. Genesis tells us so clearly that this God creates the world on purpose and takes pleasure in it. 
Unlike the other creation mythologies that showed the gods who view the human race as a nuisance, as a bother, as an interference, the Genesis story says, you know what? God set out to do this on purpose. In other words, this male and female thing, this marriage thing, it's not an accident. It's absolutely intentional. And while we're at it, we should probably correct another sort of notion that floats out there, and that is that God created the world because He was lonely. And God, this sort of hopeless, romantic, needed fellowship. Folks, we just said the creed this morning. What does the creed remind us about God? He is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Within the Godhead, there is so much exploding joy and love. There's no need in God. Creation, in fact, I love George Marsden is this, is this historian that, that used to talk about Jonathan Edwards. And he's summarizing Jonathan Edwards, the great Puritan preacher in the 1800s. It says, Edwards used to say that creation, the universe, is an explosion of God's glory. And so that perfect goodness, beauty, and love radiate from God and draw creatures to, an ever, incre- to ever increasingly share in God's joy and delight. Think about that. This is why we say every time you experience the joy of friendship or the joy of a relationship or the joy of marriage, you're saying, you know what? This little joy I'm experiencing is a bit of the overflow of the joy within the Trinity itself. That's a beautiful thought. You can develop that more maybe on another day. What is it that makes marriage so wonderful? What is it? I mean, come on. I mean, do we really, do we need this? I mean, we're kind of in a day where maybe marriage is being postponed because careers are important and all of this is important. What is it? I mean, why do we really have to have this? I think there are many ways of answering this question, but if I were to say it in a word, what makes marriage so wonderful in a word is intimacy. Because there's this longing probably, I think, I, 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 I think, I believe, in all of us to be fully known by another person. But not just to be fully known, but to be fully loved. After you're fully known, or in spite of being fully known. Isn't that true? To say, and, and maybe that's sort of the, you know, the, the, the dance, if you will, when you're dating is like, how much do I let them know about me, you know? <laughs> and you're kind of like, my social media profile makes me seem like I'm this intellectual, but what if she, what if she finds out that all of my knowledge comes from Wikipedia, <laughs> you know? How much do I let myself be fully known because I don't just want to be fully known, I want to be fully loved in spite of being fully known. And marriage affords us that opportunity. Going back to C.S. Lewis's book, The Four Loves, you remember last week when he talked about friends, he said, friends look in the same direction. They're shoulder to shoulder. That's why if you're looking to build friends, you sort of start pursuing a truth or uh, or think church, of course, is one of the ways we do that. We, we sit side by side. We're beholding the cross and friendships begin to develop because of that. But he says, lovers, look at each other. And actually, he goes on to say, that is to say, in the opposite direction. <laughs> Which means very often, when you find yourself attracted to this other person, you, you realize very early into this, you see a different view of the world than I do. We are facing each other, but also we're facing opposite directions. I mean, what's a boy from Malaysia and a girl from Iowa got in common? Certainly looking at the world in different ways. East, west, 
Anyway, <laughs> charming story. But it was also the reason that Holly and I broke up at least twice. Could be three debating. It's a debatable whether that third time was a breakup or not. So were we really dating when that one happened? You know. It's also why we, you know, friends who knew us from college are looking at the cookie. You know, it's also why there were these up and down, turbulent, you know, sort of, yes, we really think we like each other. Oh, but I don't know, you know. I went back to our college last week and looked at the very spot in the prayer gardens, that very bench where Holly broke up with me one day. <laughs> I can never see those prayer gardens the same way again. <laughs> But we want to be fully known. We want to be fully loved by somebody else. And it's always a little strange, you know, when when intimacy runs ahead of commitment. Have you ever noticed that? That actually intimacy and commitment need to grow at the same time. Or I would say commitment needs to sort of lead it, if anything. In other words, you need to know that someone's committed to you before you're able to reveal more. I'll give you an example of this. Okay, the other day, I called AT&T to talk about our iPhone plans to say, look, can we get something cheaper? Isn't there shared minutes or something, you know? And I'm talking, and I don't know, conversation's going on, and Holly's, you know, getting the, the kids fed. And, and all of a sudden, she hears me say, yeah, the four kids, yes, I have four kids. Oh, Sophia is our oldest, she's eight, and Holly's just looking at me like, what are you doing? Why are you telling the lady at AT&T about our kids? I'm like, it's fine, honey. And the other one's six. Yes. And we have one boy. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. Boys are. Yes. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. And Holly's just looking at me like, who are you talking to? Like, too much information. And so there's something funny that happens when intimacy outruns commitment. <laughs> But you know, of course, that also happens when you think about sex. It's, it's difficult sometimes to say, well, what's the deal with, with sex? Why do Christians sort of say that you can't have sex before marriage? I mean, is this sort of an old-fashioned rule? I mean, are we trying to sort of go back to a Victorian age? I mean, is that what this is about? I love the way in 1 Corinthians 7, um, Eugene Peterson in the message, he's paraphrasing, no doubt, but, but I like the way he's paraphrasing this idea, and this is the way it says it. He says, Sexual desires are strong, but marriage is stronger. Now think about this. Think about fire for a minute. We had wildfires last summer. We know that fire in the wrong place can be destructive. Destructive. Devastating. Many of you have first-hand stories of fleeing out of the Rockerman area, and all of us had Instagrammed pictures of it. We, We remember this. Fire in the wrong context is destructive. But fire in a fireplace can be wonderful. In fact, pre-electricity, fire in a fireplace was how you cooked, was how you, uh, you had light, it's how you had heat, it's sort of the, the gathering place of the family. And I think in many ways physical intimacy is like that. If it's not within something stronger than it, it will run crazy. It'll be destructive. This is the thing that I think in youth groups or in church that, that people don't say, so I'm going to say this, okay? You're very quiet. That's good. <laughs> it is true that all sins are sins before God. It is true. From the itty-bittiest, quote-unquote, to the biggies, quote-unquote. No such thing, right? Before God, it's all sin. But did you know that Paul tells us that not all sins are equal in the damage that they do to you? 
That's what's not told to you. So someone who's struggling with pornography, we tend to say, oh, it's okay, buddy. I kind of had a little anger in my heart, too. Like, you know, somebody ought to tell you that sins that are related to sexuality are more destructive to you than other sins. Paul says that. So be aware of this. Be aware of the grace of God that is available to you to forgive you and to free you. And that's a whole other topic for another day. But there is a reason why the fire has to be in the fireplace to be good. Physical intimacy needs the strength of covenant in order for it to actually be a blessing in your relationship. And many of you, I know, have stories that you could think of, people that you know maybe from your own life where you could say, you know what, when we let intimacy get ahead of commitment, things got weird. All of a sudden felt insecure, all of a sudden felt vulnerable, all of a sudden felt manipulated, all of a sudden felt controlled, on and on and on. This is the way the world works. Is It says, use intimacy as a tool to entice commitment. And the Bible says it's the other way around. Pledge commitment and let intimacy flourish. That's the way it works. All right. Your parents, you can uncover your children's ears now. One of the things that helps a marriage, I think, is to understand that, that in a very real way, we all come into a marriage with a box of desires. We come into marriage, whether we know it or not, with this, with this box of desires. Maybe you come into a dating relationship, you, you meet a guy, or you meet a girl, and you think, I've got this box of desires. The trouble is, most of us are not always aware of what's in the box. And so, desires become unsaid expectations. And we got a little flow graph, flow chart for you this morning. Desires turn into unsaid expectations. And you know the funny thing about unsaid expectations? Is what happens when they are unmet? They turn into frustrations. And so very often, you don't even discover that you had a box let alone what's in it, until you get irritated at somebody. You're like, man, I am so, why does he always, and how come she never, like, wait, dude, was that something you even cared about? Like, yeah, I guess, I guess I had this box here, and I didn't realize I had it, but I just sort of let that desire turn into an unsaid expectation, which ultimately led to frustration. Don't have to raise your hands, but how many of y'all been there? Right? You know, some of you are raising your hands, great. No elbowing now. Okay, but here's the other thing about expectations is, is what, if when they, what if they are met? You know what happens when an unsaid expectation is met? What do you get? Silence. Nothing. Why? Because I expected you to do that. Does Colorado Springs Utilities send you a thank you note every month? Just for, hey, hey Glenn, you know, just... Got your check. <laughs> Just so thrilled. Thanks again. No. When do you hear from the utility company? When you don't pay. Or Comcast. When do you hear from direct? When do you hear from these guys? When you don't pay. So at the best case scenario for an expectation is silence. Can I tell you, there are a lot of marriages that function like this. Where the best days are where nobody's mad. The best days are where nobody says anything. It's like, well, it's fine. How's, good? How's life? It's fine. How are you? I'm fine. Are we doing okay? We're fine. I have lots of desires that I've never articulated, but they've turned into expectations, and, I've, and you're meeting them, so it's fine. 
Oof. So, okay, all right, we, we got to get out of this. So, so what do we do? Well, desires need to then be turned into requests instead. I think we've got to say, okay, what, what, what is in here? You know, I do desire... Well, that's a picture of Holly and I. Look at that. So Holly gave me this box when we were dating. Isn't that sweet? She is good. When she decided I was the one, it was really good. Okay. Um, and, and, and she gave me this box. So, so, but this is our box of desires. Okay, so, so you turn it into a request and you say, you know what? I would love it if you came home for dinner every night. I would love it if we could count on you to be home at a regular time for dinner so we could eat together as a family. Oh, sure. Okay, great. Or I would love it if you wouldn't just turn on the TV every night, that we could talk first. These are all the ones that are real in our life <laughs> towards me. Okay, so, so what happens when a request is met? You get gratitude. Now, that's a wonderful thing. Actually, a request is proof of the relationship. Did you know that? Many of us have this ideal where we think, well, I don't want to ask because they should know. <laughs> Did you know that asking is actually proof of the relationship? That's, this is how Jesus teaches us to approach our Father in heaven, isn't it? He says, look, if you believe that you have a good Father, then ask and seek and knock, and that asking is actually proof that you trust the love of the other person. I wouldn't ask Holly for something if I didn't trust that she loves me. Does that make sense? And she wouldn't ask me to turn off the TV if she didn't trust that I love her enough to do it. As hard as it is. It's the Super Bowl, honey. <laughs> um, I also think, fellas that are single, you have to ask her out. <laughs> you know? I mean, it's like, I've got this desire to have a godly woman. I have this desire to not be alone. But you won't ask anybody. It's just coffee. Girls, if a, single ladies and single dudes, if a single dude asks you out, what are you going to say, most likely? Yes, just say yes. It's just a coffee. It's just lunch, right? God's probably not going to like appear to you in a dream and say, take this woman to be thy wife. It begins with asking, and it's sustained by asking. You spend all of a relationship learning to trust and ask. But what happens when you ask, and it doesn't happen? Rejection? Rejection? <laughs> Let's move beyond the date now. What about in a marriage? And you ask and say, hey, I, I, I would love it if you would... You know, let's take something simple. Be home. And it doesn't happen. Week after week, it doesn't happen. Now what? Now what do you do? Because there's a problem, isn't there? <laughs> and the world says the problem is you've got the wrong person. You've got to find another spouse who really gets you. You've got to find another person who really gets you, who'll give you what you're asking for, who'll meet your needs, who'll take care of your needs, because clearly this person doesn't care about your needs. The Bible says there is a problem, but the problem is this thing called sin. 
And we have this sinfulness inside of us that even though I may want to, I don't. What is it Paul says in Romans? All the things I want to do, I don't do. And all the things I don't want to do, I do. Oh, this wretched man that I am, the law of sin and death is at work in me. Listen, without Jesus, that's all you got. And so no wonder the world says, well, look, hey man, if if you're with somebody and you're asking them to do these things for you and they're not meeting your requests, then hey, listen, power to you. You need to get out of that relationship. You need to get out of that marriage. You need to just go and find someone else. Isn't there a different way for us? Isn't there a different way? Isn't there something else? What do we do when we run into that and we say, I, I, there's, there's a dead end here. I'm not getting anywhere. And I, listen, I understand this is delicate because there are instances where a marriage ends in a, in a divorce for reasons beyond one person's control. I understand that. But I think we too easily sort of look for the out clause. And we too easily sort of say, well, if I'm not getting what I need, then it's time to take my box somewhere else. And the gospel says, actually, before you can understand any of this, you need to remember that there's sin. That the Genesis story doesn't leave us with, it's not good for man to be alone and therefore here's Eve. The Genesis story goes on and tells us that there was sin in the world. And you know, actually, very quickly in the story in Genesis, you see all the things that God put together beginning to come apart, right? The God-human relationship comes apart. They're hiding from God. What? The male-female relationship's coming apart. She made me do it. (laughs) The brother relationship comes apart. Cain and Abel. The The societal, ethnic, national relationships come apart at Babel. By the end of Genesis 11, you're kind of thinking, this whole world is a mess because everything has come apart. You're right. But do you know, the Bible doesn't leave us there because that wouldn't be very good news, would it? I mean, that's really, really bad news, though. That's the worst news. The news is worse than you thought. That the problem's not her. The problem's also you. And the problem's not just you, but it's him and her and him and her and, and everybody. And you're like... Can't I move to a town where I find normal people? Can't I find a church? Can't I find a... I just need a... You'll never outrun the effects of sin until you run to the cross. You'll never outrun the effects of sin until you run to the cross. Because Paul says this in Ephesians 1.10. He says, this is what God planned for the climax of all times to bring all things together in Christ, the things in heaven along with the things on earth. This is Paul saying, I'm going to retell the Genesis story and I'm going to say that all of these things that were split up, heaven and earth, male and female, all these things that were pulled apart in Christ, they begin to come together. And do you know that's actually the theme of Paul's letter in Ephesians? Do you know, if you take Ephesians 1.10 as Paul's thesis statement, you can actually work through the whole letter and see all those two things that come together again. In Ephesians 2, Jew and Gentile, chosen people, unchosen people, come together, insiders and outsiders. 
You get to four and all of a sudden it's this body of Christ that's now coming together. You get to five and you see husband and wife coming together. Things that were separated by societal hierarchy, slaves and masters. Now you saying, look in Christ, you really ought, you're going to meet at this level of ground. So, uh, children and parents, all of these things that the effects of sin rips apart and fragments and causes abuse and oppression. Paul is saying, look in Jesus, they begin to be pulled together again. This is why our gospel is not private news. It's such public good news for the world. This is why you and I have nothing to be ashamed of because everything that the world has to offer is ways to sort of manage the fragmentation in the world. And only Jesus says, I, have, I am the one who took the brokenness of the world on myself so that in me it can all be whole again. By His stripes we are healed. Did you know that when Peter's talking about that, he's not talking about physical healing. That doesn't mean physical healing is not true. It just means you need to see a bigger story than that. That in 1 Peter where he quotes Isaiah, and he says, by His wounds we are healed. He's saying, Jesus became wounded so He might become healer. Like the song that we sang this morning, Jesus the wounded healer, so that He took upon Himself our brokenness so that you can now have wholeness. What begins to happen? I think the first thing that begins to happen is Jesus becomes our source. We heard the gospel reading this morning where Jesus is talking to the woman at the well and he says, look, if you had known the graciousness of God, you would be asking me for a drink. She's like, what? Huh? Drink? Who? Are you saying you're greater than Jacob? And he's like, lady, you don't even know. <laughs> I've got living water. If you drink what I give, you'll never thirst again. Do you know the rest of the story? The rest of the story, she says, okay, well, okay, well, I want some. And he says, well, go and call your husband. She says, I don't got a husband. He's like, you're right. You've got like four of them, right? And this one that you're with is not your husband. What's Jesus doing? He's not shaming her. I'm skipping over this text because we're actually going to talk about this text more in depth in a couple of weeks. But the big picture here is there's this encounter where a person has tried to find other sources of love to quench this deep thirst in her soul. And Jesus says, you don't got to live that way. You don't have to live like Jeremiah the prophet said, you've, you've, you've dug up cracked and dirty broken wells. Really the image is like a pothole filled with rainwater. You don't have to drink out of that. I've got an artesian well that'll make you never thirst again. Jesus becomes our source. You remember last week we introduced this German word, the Sehnsucht. And it's this word that philosophers and you know, liter literature folks have used to describe a longing that remains unfulfilled. Uh, a, a desire that, that never gets finished. So wait a minute, going back to our box of desires, you mean there are things that I have deep inside my heart that nothing in the world can really quench? Correct. And you're not alone in that experience. In fact, it's such a common experience that they came up with a fancy word for it, the Zainzucht. And so now, <laughs> New Life Downtown, now whenever you come across something that you're like, man, I was really looking forward to this, but it was a bit of a letdown. You can say, not I've been punked, but you can say, I've been Zane Zooked, man. <laughs> I've been Zane Zooked. 
I've been left wanting more. I've been left sort of longing that this, this what I had left me feeling incomplete. It's unfinished. It's not done. Right. Because marriage is what love comes through, not where love comes from. Marriage is what love comes through, not where love comes from. Do you remember last week, the coffee cup? If I, I love Starbucks. I like an awake tea latte, four pumps classic. I also like a tall white mocha. During the holidays, I prefer the salted caramel mocha. But if I had this drink in my hand, I'm just telling you, you know. Get, get, <laughs> pastor appreciation has got to be coming up sometime. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. But if I had this cup and I drank it, and I was like, oh, I love this drink. Oh, this drink. And I start to think the cup is where the drink comes from, not what the drink comes through. And I hang on to the cup on the second day and on the third day and on the fourth day. And I'm looking at this cup and I'm trying to get every drop out of it. And all of a sudden it's like now fermented, you know, latte. Like, this is gross. You stupid cup. You begin to curse the cup. You failed me, cup. You let me down. I'm walking away. <laughs> never again, cup. I will never be fooled again, cup. Fool me once. Shame on you. Fool me twice. Anyway. That's what we do, though, to relationships, isn't it? Because even marriage, this most beautiful picture of God's love, is not where love comes from. It's what love comes through. The person is never the source. Jesus is always the source. Finally, Jesus becomes our center. Ephesians 5 was our New Testament reading. We heard it this morning. And Paul goes in this very long paragraph, which he's prone to do. And he says, being filled with the Holy Spirit, being continuously filled with the Holy Spirit, you can sing and you can do this and you can do that, but you know what else you can do when you're being filled with the Holy Spirit? You can submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. You can surrender to the other out of reverence for Christ. In other words, it's Jesus that pulls you and her together because you're moving towards the center. It's Jesus that does that. Paul has... This vision of it. Imagine what begins to happen to marriage when, or relationships, romantic relationships, romantic love, when you begin to think of it this way. All of a sudden you realize you're able to take all of your requests to whom? To our Father in heaven. And, and it's not that you don't make requests of your spouse. It's that you can make requests of your spouse knowing that your ultimate source is God. That's an amazing proposition. And you can all of a sudden say, okay, God, look, this is where it comes from. Because, because Holly and I did break up a couple times when we were dating, I, I, I carried um, quite a bit of insecurity into our marriage. And so it was very easy for me to sort of feel a sense of injuredness to my pride or to, my, or to feel insecure. And that was compounded by the fact that I came from a family that was very verbally affirming. I mean, my goodness, if you had heard the way my parents encouraged my sister, you would have thought we were like the next emperors or something. I mean, it was like just, oh, you are so big. And Holly was raised in a Midwestern family. 
a classic Midwestern German Lutheran family that doesn't say a whole lot. And it's, you know, it's sort of, a, I mean, you know, don't, well, don't you know I love, I mean, didn't I tell you I loved you once? <laughs> yeah. yeah, it hasn't changed, I mean. <laughs> and and they, they are very different now than they were when she was growing up, but Imagine the two of us coming together in a marriage and me needing to get so much security from her and her not knowing how to give words of affirmation. I would make requests sometimes. Honey, do you think you can kind of like tell me if I did, did a good job? Oh, yeah, no, of course I think you did a great job. I just didn't think, I mean, I didn't know you needed to hear it. But yeah, okay. But anyone who's been married a long time, and we're coming up on 12 years this summer, and it's not that long compared to Mike and Dottie, but 12, you know, it's good. Anyone who's been married more than a few years, you realize that you don't really change each other that much. <laughs> and actually, you don't change them at all. <laughs> and some of the things that they were struggling with before you got married, it's going to be part of the marriage. And if you don't have this other source that you're bringing all of your requests and desires to, you're going to be looking for, to your spouse to be more than they could ever be to you. And then you're going to be hurt. And then you'll be disappointed and you'll be bitter. So it took me a few years to sort of really say, okay, Lord, ground me again in your love for me. Ground me again so that, so that it, it's, fi- it's fine to, again, make requests. But it's not where my security comes from. Because I think there are surface level desires and then there are deep level desires. And many times our spouse can can sort of help you with the surface level desires. Sure, honey, I can do that, you know. But when you say, I want to feel valued or loved or this or that, say, well, I'm trying, but I can't give that to you. I'm not where love comes from. I'm what love comes through. Does that make sense? Secondly, you become free to forgive. Oh, man. You think of how Jesus, God the Father, has desires for us of what He wants us to be like. Think of all the requests He's made of you. To love justice, to walk humbly, love mercy. How have we done with His requests? Not so good. Actually, Terrible. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So, God has made known His request to us and we've failed Him. And what does He do? He comes and lays down His life for us. Does for us what we could never do for ourselves. Lives righteously. Gives us His righteousness. And so now we're able to forgive each other. And this dovetails into the final thing. We're empowered to serve each other with sacrificial, self-giving love. Can I say this to all of you who are single? You guys are so smart. And you know so much. But I talk to so many young people who are single who are talking about their dating prospects even, like a cost-benefit analysis. Well, I mean, I like him, but I just... I don't know about this and this. I, I, I think she's cool, but, you know, I got these dreams I want to pursue. And all of a sudden, it's the cost versus benefit. Can I tell you something? Marriage is the most costly thing you'll ever experience in life. It is. 
But you'll never know intimacy until you know the joy of laying down your life for someone else. So you've got to throw the cost-benefit analysis grid out of the window. Because, look, Paul says it. If you want to be free to do more stuff, don't get married. Don't. don't. You, you'll not be able to have the career work as hard as you thought you would. You'd not be able, you, you won't. Like, well, geez, I guess I, why, why, why would I? Because something takes over your heart. It's love divine. And love divine says, you know what? I have these dreams and these goals and these ideals, but you know what? God is flooding my heart with love. I'm going to lay my life down for this person, even though it's going to cost me stuff. Cost me my career hopes. Cost me my this. Because that's love divine taking over. So, Marriage isn't pure reciprocation, is it? In fact, the world kind of says, I'll love you as long as you are lovely to me. And when you are not so lovely to me, I'll see about loving you. Do you know what the gospel says to that? It says, I'll love you because God has loved you in Christ Jesus with an everlasting love, with a love I don't have within me, but he has within him. Jonathan Edwards said it this way, he says, The saints love God for his own sake and love each other for God's sake. For God's sake. Truly, this is love divine. Where does this leave us? It leaves us with saying wherever you are in life, single, dating, engaged, married, divorced, second marriage, wherever it is, to say, look, I've got to get one thing straight. I've got to come to the fountain again and again and again. I've got to come to the fountain and drink of everlasting love again and again and again so that I can forgive, so that I can lay my life down, so that I can love in the way that I have been loved by God. Amen? Let's come to the table together this morning. Let's pray. Would you take a moment and just quietly where you are, begin to let the Lord search your heart and say, God, where have I been treating someone else as my source? Where have I been treating another person, another individual as my source? Where have I been trying to make too much? Where have I been avoiding? Where have I been ignoring? Where have I been afraid? Maybe even for for those who are single, where have I been afraid to take a risk? Because I've been too insecure. Maybe I need the love of God to secure me so I can take the risk to ask someone out. Seriously. Let's all of us begin to confess our own emptiness so that we can experience Christ's fullness this morning.